0: This episode of The Incubator is proudly sponsored by Chiesi. Providing innovative neonatology solutions for more than 35 years, Chiesi is committed to supporting the neonatology community and the NICU families you serve. To learn more, visit www.nicuconnections.com incubator.
1: This is The Incubator, a weekly discussion about new advances in neonatology and the fascinating individuals who make this progress possible.
0: Hmm.
1: Hmm. I am Dr. Ben Korsha
0: and I'm Dr. Daphne Yesova Barbo. We are neonatal intensive care physicians.
1: Welcome. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. Daphna, how are you today?
0: Uh, I'm good. Uh, you know, we had a chaotic week, but we, we, it's always refreshing when we get to speak to parents and interview parents. So I'm, I'm feeling refreshed just by having this opportunity.
1: I'm very excited about the guest we have on today because it's not just a parent. It's an author. I love talking to authors and uh, discussing books. So uh, without further ado, we're going to introduce our guest for today. And it's Sarah DiGregorio. Uh, Sarah is a freelance journalist who has written for various publications, including the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, The Village Voice, Food & Wine Magazine, Food & Wine, BuzzFeed, Parade, and Saveur. Her work has been included in the Best American Food Writing yearly anthologies three times she lives in Brooklyn, New York, with her daughter and her husband. She is the author of the book Early that we're going to be discussing today, where inspired by her harrowing experience giving birth to a premature daughter, she writes a compelling and empathetic an empathetic uh, work that combines memoir with rigorous reporting to tell the story of neonatology and to meditate on the questions raised by premature birth. Sarah, thank you so very much for being on with us today.
2: Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure and an honor.
1: Well, the pleasure is all ours. And before we begin, uh, I wanted, uh, the the way we usually work with authors is that for anybody that hasn't had the chance to pick up your book yet, uh, and if they haven't, then they should, um, can you tell the audience briefly a little bit about um, what the book is about and what prompted you to put pen to paper when it comes to the topic of prematurity?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So that's um, kind of a, it's kind of a long story, but Basically, what happened um, was that in 2014, I gave birth to my daughter, Mira, um, at 28 weeks as a result of intrauterine growth restriction. And um, we were very fortunate in that we got excellent care um, and Mira did well. um, And uh, she was in the NICU for two months and was discharged. And um, so much of that experience for me was profound disorientation and a sense that I I didn't always understand what was happening. Um, it was she's my first and only child. Um, it was my introduction to parenthood. Uh, I really felt like I was dropped in the middle of a, a world that I did not understand, and that my child's life was in danger. Um, and so. In the aftermath of this, it became clear to me pretty quickly that there would never be an answer to why this happened to us. You know, why us? Why me? Why did my placenta fail? Why did she have to go through this? Why was this her introduction to life on earth? Um, But as I got a little farther away from it, I started to wonder about it in a different way. I thought, you know, one in 10 babies are born early. How, how can that be? How was it that I didn't know very much about premature birth when I myself was a Ickmini? And this is such a common experience. Um, and so as a journalist, I started to ask these questions um, like, you know, what does it mean that babies like Mira are now more than likely to survive? What does it, how did we get here? Um, why are some communities um, more likely to give birth early? How is this tied into structural injustice in our our country? Um, It turns out that almost everything has a prematurity angle, um, which was a big surprise to me um, that, you know, it's a, it's some, it's a, it is an experience that touches almost everything about um, our lives. And so even though people don't realize it, and so those questions, unlike the question of why me, um, do have, you know, are able to be interrogated, do have stories and richness um, that I could investigate. And so I started to write about our experience and I started to um, try to do some reporting about the bigger picture. And um, I was lucky enough to find an editor at HarperCollins who um, believed in the book. and. That's really, you know, the book is, is about our experience of premature birth, my family's experience, but also about what premature birth has meant and means to families and communities and actually to everybody. That's mm-hmm. a very general description, but that was my no oh, goal.
0: That even no, sums it up for sure.
1: What, what, one more question about that. How long did it take? What was the gap mm-hmm. between discharge home and, and starting the writing process?
2: Yeah. So, um, Mira was born in 2014. I didn't really start working on this until 2016. I got the book contract in 2017 and then it came out in 2020 in January of 2020. I was working on it full time for about two years.
1: Yeah. And we'll talk about that because it's a very well-researched book. So Mm -hmm, yeah, mm -hmm. go ahead. No,
0: I, um, it's interesting that Ben asked that question because I always wonder and it's not the, it's not the same for every family obviously but when can families even start to like revisit the experience you know because um you you mentioned this numerous times in your book about um how much it takes from you, right? Um, in in that moment, and then in the years following, and and how much um, families carry with them after a, a NICU admission. I I mean, we like to quote things from the book. Um, at some point, and you you wrote, "It hurt me physically to look at Mira. I found myself taking one painful breath and then another, unlikely to do anything except live from one minute to another." Um, and I. I sense that's how lots of parents feel. And so, so it was helpful, I think, to hear about, you know, how, what, when, when were you able to like come back and even start to, to think about, you know, the, yeah. the experience?
2: Yeah, you're right. Um, it took me at least a year to be able to really even function in a way that allowed me to think in a bigger picture way. Um, I struggle with anxiety in general and the experience of being in the NICU, um, really brought that up for me. Um, and so I, I, yes, um, that passage that you read, it, it's still, it's still with me. I can still remember that it really, it hurt, it hurt me to, to look at her because I felt that she was so vulnerable and, uncomfortable and that she shouldn't that this that that she should be protected and that she wasn't. Um, And when we brought her home, um, we had um, a number of, you know, um, I want to always say that we were so fortunate because we were so fortunate that she survived, that she has done well. Um, There were a number of different um medical issues that kind of constantly need to be followed up on. I felt like we were in sort of a constant state of, of hypervigilance for at least a year. Um, and, um, and then at that point, actually I had this, I had a one moment when I was at work and I suddenly felt like I needed to write about it. And it was like a physical, it was a physical feeling that I, I had to, it was almost like I use this analogy. It's kind of gross. It was almost like I needed to vomit. <laughs> And I just started writing and it was like, I was ready to think about it again and I was ready to think about it um, in a big picture kind of way. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it took me at least a year. Um,
1: I think what's really interesting about your writing is that you throughout, so 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 there, in the book there's there's your story and then there's this, this journey you're taking where you're learning about neonatology. And so I feel like you could have easily polished a lot of the experience that you went through uh, yourself, but you write it so raw and it's so good because um, you are very honest in how you felt about many different things. And I think the way where I would like to start with that is when you describe um, the NICU consult Um, and you, and you mentioned that this is your first introduction to neonatology and and you're so frustrated with the with the, the consult, the way it goes, and all this information that is being vomited to you, and how I think you do a very good job writing about where you as a parent find yourself physically and emotionally, and where the, the, the consultant enters the room, and how these are two different levels. And and you're very forgiving because you, you do not uh, hold any grudges or or you don't have any issues with the person doing the consult. But I'm wondering if you can tell us a bit, if you can tell our audience a little bit more about how that experience went. And then I wanted to ask you a few more questions about the NICU consult.
2: Yes. Thank you for bringing that up, because actually that's something that I think about a lot. Um so our NICU consult, it happened after um, our 28-week scan. I was admitted to the hospital because our daughter had fallen off the growth curve. And this, of course, was the thing that we had been fearing because I had had blood work that indicated that had I had low PAP-A, extremely low PAP-A. I was getting growth scans. Um, the day before the 28-week started, um, the scan indicated she had stopped growing. They sent me straight to the hospital where I got steroids. I got a course of magnesium, which is truly awful. Um, and and then the next morning, uh, this, I, I think he was a fellow. Yes, he was a fellow. Um, he came, a, a neonatologist, he came in from the NICU to sort of tell us what to expect when you're expecting a premature baby. Um, and what he did was really kind of lay out every single complication possible for a premature baby. Um, and so, you know. That really was my, that was my introduction to what prematurity meant. So he mentioned, of course, he mentioned, um, you know, lung disease. He mentioned neck, he mentioned, um, brain bleeding. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he mentioned in that moment, you know, how likely it was that she could survive and be quote unquote disabled. Um, meanwhile, I was still pregnant. Um, we didn't really know when I was going to give birth. And so this was all hypothetical information and I think that the goal of that was to orient us so that we wouldn't be surprised later if, you know, I had a an emergency C-section that day and something terrible happened that sh- someone had already told us that this was a possibility that these terrible things were a possibility. And those terrible things were a possibility. However, I in thinking about this now I object to the generality of the information. You know, I think that there is, um, it's very important to be honest with parents. Parents don't want things sugarcoated. Um, parents really want to know what's going on in general. Um, but when you give a wide range of hypothetical outcomes, all of which are truly disastrous, <laughs> um, That's a very, very scary place to start. And so that's where I started. I was like, this is a disaster. She's quite likely to die. Um, And that was, that colored everything for me from then on forward.
1: I think this is so important, what you're describing, because um, very often neonatologists will, will grudgingly go do the consults and not realize how important it is and what kind of like you said that this is an introduction to prematurity um I uh, I, I want to say that there's something really to be said about the fact that it's first of all called the consult I think it's not really a consult I think if you are expecting a 22 weeker or a 23 weeker and you do have to make a decision regarding resuscitation then yes we do need to consult give you all the options and then you can make a decision but when you're dealing with, 25 26 27 28 and so on the the resuscitation is going to happen so i mean the way i approach the consultation is let me walk you through what will happen immediately after birth so that while you can't move you know the steps and then after after that we'll we'll sit down and we'll talk but i think this is very interesting what what you're describing and i think many many providers should pay attention to that now the reason i'm asking this question and the reason i'm using this as a as a as a jumping board for something else is because you are a very rational and pragmatic person. You like numbers, you lack stats. And that's what I was saying about the way you write is because, but you do seem to show that while you were going through the experience of the NICU, you, I don't know if you were interested in knowing the real, right? You, You were, so at some point in the book, you say, did I want to talk about my fears about disability, the future, I did not. All my conceptions about the future had evaporated. And I thought that that's completely irrational, but perfectly normal if you're a parent dealing with this. And so I think af- after the fact, after you go home, you then seek these statistics. But I'm wondering if you would have welcomed these statistics at the time that you were in the hospital.
2: That's a good question. I, I did crave knowledge in terms of, you know, I was so confused all the time and I found myself trying to ask questions in a way that would get me kind of the information that I wanted and kind of constantly being frustrated by that. Um, I, I think that, you know, some families do want numbers. I, I think I would have liked to have a number. The one number I did ask for was what are her chances of survival? Because I had just read a book, um, that had indicated to me that 28 week babies have a 90% chance of survival. I think it might be even a little higher than that. But I said, Well, she has a 90% chance of survival, right? I was kind of holding on to that. And he said, Well, she's so small. She's more like the size of a 26 week baby. So her chances of survival would be somewhere between like a 26 week baby and a 28 week baby. And that kind of information in that moment, I was like, Oh, oh, so like, you know, it, it really um, flummoxed me because I was trying to do the numbers in my head. Like, okay, well, is that like 80, 85? Like, what are we talking about? But the way that that information was presented to me was so frightening um, because there was no acknowledgement of like, you're right, your baby is more than likely to survive. Like that information that you have, the gist of that information that you have is correct. It was more like, well, and I was like, oh, okay, I can't, I can't even go here now because it's just too frightening um i would have liked for i would have liked to receive statistics that were contextualized in a way um that made it easier for me to understand what we were up against so at some point in that consult he said something like you know your daughter has maybe like a 50/50 chance of being disabled um and i didn't understand what that meant in terms of what do you, what kind of disabilities do you mean? And I didn't have the capacity at that moment to dig into that. Like what I didn't have, I guess I did have the, not, I did have the desire to have the numbers, but what I was unable to access in that moment was to ask a deeper question about context, about what, words mean when you use them? What does disability mean? I, I couldn't access that part of myself in that moment. And you're right. That is something that as a journalist, I use that a lot. I want to understand. I really want to understand the numbers and the realities um, and be able to translate that for people. Um, but it was the translation that was lacking. And I really needed that from the doctors in that moment. You know, I needed someone to say like, a lot of premature babies need physical therapy for a couple years and that classifies them as having a disability. You know, if that, if if I had had some context for that, that would have taken my anxiety way down, but instead it was this sort of, um, um, these numbers that, um, that only served to terrify me.
1: Yeah. I had an attending who used to say, Think about what do you want from these parents? Like they've done everything right. They're here. They're following the advice of their medical team. They, they're putting everything in your control. They have no control over anything at this point. There's no, like all your, the goal, my attending said the goal of the NICU consult is to reduce their anxiety as much as possible. I said, uh, and so that,
0: that echoes what you're saying. So yeah, go ahead. Dafne. Yeah, Sorry, I
2: didn't mean to yes. No, no, not at all. I agree with you. No,
0: I, I mean, I really want to underscore what you guys are saying because we have a lot of trainees that listen and I think they are taught that like the consult, that prenatal visit is the time to like give all the information and you don't want to leave anything out and, uh, you don't really want to be wrong. So, right. We give these, um, very nebulous, Details, and I think what I hope that at least our trainees and our learners will take away from this is that that consult is partic is very different depending on when you are visiting families. So, um, like Ben mentioned, if if this is in and you talk about it in the book, it's if this is in this peri viable time period where we really are going to ask parents to make some big decisions and they need that kind of information, and if it's if the decision has been made, maybe based on gestational age, um, then we just have to provide them with the information they really need to know in that time period Mm -hmm. and comfort, right? Um, Ben knows the perinatal consults, one of my favorite things about neonatology. And that is our opportunity to align with parents and say like, we're going to be here and we're going to we're gonna be here for you, and and sometimes that's all we have to say. Um, I wonder I wonder if that would have resonated with you.
2: Yes, I mean, I what I really wanted in that moment was connection um, and to know that this was something that could be handled, that was handled every day, um, and that there was lot that although this is a very scary time, this is not what anyone wants. That that you have plenty of reason to have hope. That that hope is evidence based. You know, I, I sometimes I you know that that you can't leave out like the evidence based hope. Yeah. Um, and to really convey that. Yeah, so- I know sometimes sometimes uh, doctors are afraid of hope. Yeah. Well, I don't yes, think- I, I I can see that, and it is um, it is confusing to me a little bit. I think mm-hmm. it. It sounds like you know when I've spoken to physicians, neonatologists about this, some of them say things like, you know, there are scenarios that haunt them, and I don't want to discount that. Um, there are things that have happened that haunt them. Think times when they were surprised, and a baby, and a baby did die, and the family was surprised. Um, I've had families tell me about that that they, you know, that the doctors had every expectation and communicated that they had every expectation that their baby would survive and then their baby died. And and they did feel um, misled. And so I know how, I mean, I'm very cognizant of what a, what a very difficult line this is for people to walk.
1: I wanted to ask you about the, the fact that prematurity seems to be running in your family and how were you, were you um, familiar with that aspect of your history when when uh, your personal uh, delivery unfolded? And did that sort of uh, give you preconceived ideas? Because sometimes I find that having a history of prematurity sometimes could be the best thing or the worst thing. Because you have uh, an, the example of a family that has had a 34 weeker in the past and now they have a 24 weeker, and they're like, yes, our other baby was also premature. And it's like, no, this is very different. Right. Or, right. Um, you could have the opposite where a family has had a very premature baby and now they have less premature, but they're still now all this PTSD is coming back and it's like, no, it's, it's okay. Like this is going to be much better than the other one. So I'm wondering if that, uh, if that lineage sort of, uh, played a, played a part in your, um,
2: I think it actually, you know, um, I, I think if I had had a premature baby before it would have been very different, but because I was premature, um my parents didn't talk about it very much and of course well, and both of my parents are dead and um I now wonder what some of that silence was about especially from my mother um because what was communicated to me was very lighthearted it was like oh you were so small you were so cute you know i was born around 32 weeks um i i don't know the gestation exactly i was 3 pounds um And I was brought to um, women and infants in Providence. Uh, And so, you know, obviously that was a situation in 1979. um, But I think that as far as I know, I didn't have any um, respiratory needs. Um, And so, you know, my parents kind of conveyed to me this history as something kind of lovable and quirky. Um, you know, you were so little, my father called me chipmunk, um, my parents, we always had this joke about how I was clumsy, um, and I stayed back in preschool because I, because my motor skills were so bad (laughs) and, you know, and so I had this conception of myself as like, oh, I've always been clumsy. Um, and I did not connect that at all to my premature birth. And of course I don't have concrete evidence that that is why, but it would, it, it stands to reason. Um, so initially at 12 weeks when I had this blood work done and I said, well, there's a chance your baby will be a little early, a little small. What I thought was like, oh, like me, that will be fine. Um, (laughs) but I didn't have a lot of context for it. But, you know, I, I, did subsequently find out that, um, my grandfather and his twin were born at home. Um, weighing about one pound and were my great grandmother incubated them in their in her oven and they survived wow. <laughs> wow. yeah so you know if there is a lot there
0: um i actually have a question particularly about um being the parent of a baby who's like you said small and you were small but specifically for the subset of babies who are growth restricted um in utero because i think it does as as a neonatologist who gives who gives anticipatory guidance um i think we have that habit of saying like it colors everything about the admission. The baby who's who's very small, right? So we say, well, um, you know, they're so small, but look how well they're doing. Or you know, um, uh, nutrition is going to be particularly an ongoing problem because she was so small, um, you know. And I wonder how that comes across to families um, in your own perception about your baby. And like you said, what we teach children about themselves as they, as they get
2: older. Yeah. That's so interesting. You know, um, Mira started out her life very, very small and continued to be very small for a long time. She's um, seven now. And, um, it was, I think as a mother, this is very challenging and very emotional the idea that your child is not being nourished, that you didn't nourish her well enough for her to grow in your uterus. Um, you f- I felt this is not based in reality. Um, I felt that I had failed her so fundamentally. And then when she was discharged, um, I tried so hard to breastfeed. It just wasn't, you know, she she didn't have the we, we didn't, we, it was not possible for us. She, it was very difficult for her from a muscle tone point of view. Um, and so I felt like I was continually thwarted in this desire to nourish my baby who was too small. Um, there was a time when she would vomit almost every day. Um, there was a time when the, you know, they brought up the dreaded failure to thrive. Um, her pediatrician brought that up. Um, we started giving her like pediatric insurer, um, and all of this really is a you know a, a really big emotional challenge. I think for parents, um, I think there for us, we have thankfully. She has grown past it. And it's very obvious to me that actually, in retrospect, there was really nothing I could do. It was not about me (laughs) or my um, ability to properly feed her, nourish her, encourage her. Um, Her body was on a timeline, and there was really nothing anyone could do about that timeline. And she's now average size, which I would have never believed that this could happen, but she is average size. but there are all these sort of complications that um, I think can layer on themselves um, you know, because she had she had um, asthma, she had just a lot of inflammation um, a, a lot of the time, and this prevented her from, I think, um, eating. You know, in a healthy way, because often then she would cough, 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 and then she would just throw up, and she just she had a lot going on in her body. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So this is probably not really an answer, but
1: no, but you, you're saying something that I had a long I had discussions with Dr. Daniel Rausch, who I worked with in New York, who was saying that an ability of a parent to feed their baby mm-hmm. is one of the very few things that we can do to parent our child. We yeah. change their diaper and we feed them. And until they can talk to us, that's pretty much all we have. Yeah. Um, and when we remove this, it's a huge part of our role that's being taken away from us. Uh, so I resonate um, very vividly with what you're describing. But I wanted, but you do, I think, mention this in a way um, when you describe the helplessness around mm-hmm. your situation in the NICU. And it's funny to me. I mean, it's not funny. It's interesting to me how you you equate this also with the pictures that you're looking at of. Of you in the NICU, where you say uh, you look at your mother's face in those in those pictures, and you say the look on my mother's face is identical to my own across thirty five years—love, terror, exhaustion—the same cocktail coursing through the vein of the most brand new parents, but something else too—not guilt, but something close to it—helplessness. Mm-hmm. I'm, I mean, I feel like this is something that every NICU parent will resonate with, but I'm wondering. Um, did you find any way to mitigate this helplessness while you were in the NICU, uh, where you're watching your baby in the box, really separated from you? Um, can, can you tell us a little bit how, how you overcame that?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. I've been thinking about this a lot because I'm speaking about family-centered care on Friday um, and thinking about that as really the goal of family-centered care to support families in not feeling helpless to help them understand their essentialness to help them understand that their way of knowing is important and that there are things that they can do um did I have that experience you know unfortunately not a lot there were definitely um I would say that kangaroo care was really one of the only things that made me feel like a like a competent mother, you know, cause I could feel that she relaxed against me. Like that was very obvious to me that she wanted, I felt that she wanted me to hold her and I wanted to hold her. And that was so powerful for me. And it, it did make me feel like there was something I could do. Um, in our NICU, um, there were only three recliners for kangaroo care, and it was an open ward. And so there was a space issue. There was sort of a resource issue. You could only hold your baby for three hours. If, if um, someone else was using, you know, if those chairs were in use, when you could be there, you were kind of out of luck. And so those things were, um, those things were difficult. But I would say that, you know, kangaroo care was the number one thing. When she started, um, drinking from a bottle, I, you know, this is an interesting thing that I think happens in a lot of NICUs. I had wanted to directly breastfeed, um, but it quickly became obvious to me, or at least it was conveyed to me that this was potentially going to, um, lengthen her NICU stay, um, and that she needed to drink from a bottle to get the amount of calories, that would allow her to grow, that would allow her to go home. Um, And that was, um, you know, one more thing that kind of made me feel quite helpless. Um, So, you know, those are things that I think that NICUs could do, could do differently um, in supporting breastfeeding a little bit more without that sort of, you know, I don't know. you, You guys tell me like how, how Daphne, real is the that? Daphne
1: meter, the Daphna meter right now is that it's Max. She's ready to go. <laughs> so <laughs> uh,
0: you, you verbatim, uh, you verbatim uh, reiterated what my um, my message was for our charge nurse meeting that we have this week. So I, I, I totally, that resonates with me. And I think you've given us some real concrete things that we can do every single day, right? Um, I think- Um, again, you're uh, well-educated, you were doing the research. Um, I'm sure that you did some of your own self-advocacy, but we have to ask parents every single day, like, do you want to hold your baby today? Have you held your baby today? Uh, I think you touched on another thing that's, again, I'm on my soapbox, um, that there's no reason we can't let babies start practicing at the breast Way before you know, we were gonna let them bottle feed and and uh. let them um, uh, let parents have that experience and work on oral skills. So I love that you mentioned that, and um, you know, we like to give our listeners something that they you know can take away. I wonder if there's anything you know that somebody did or somebody asked you that that empowered you. A little bit or gave you some of that parenthood back that we can highlight that, that hopefully somebody can take to their daily practice.
2: Yeah. Um, You know, I want to reiterate, we got really good care and um, I really love the people who saved my daughter's life. I will say that the, the family, the family centeredness of the care was a little bit lacking in terms of, um me being able to have hands-on experience caring for Mira. Um, you know, one thing, one thing that kind of um, that kind of broke through to me at one point was it was just before Mira was gonna go home. So she was an open topped bassinet by that time. And I came in and I said to the nurse, can I pick her up? Can I hold her? And she said, that's your baby. You don't need my permission to pick her up. And I was like, oh my God, I, I don't. <laughs> um, and I really, I really, I loved that she said that to me because it seemed so obvious to her that that's my baby. Mm-hmm. Um, but also I did wish that, the truth was I had never picked her up before in the two months she had been alive. A nurse had picked her up, put her on my chest and then brought her back. So I had never, I had never, um, I did not understand that I could pick her up that it would be safe for me to do so. Um, and, and so that, what that nurse said did kind of break through to me. And I, and I, I loved even just, just the phrase, that's your baby. That's
1: amazing.
0: I have chills. I that's that's exactly it. How you know? How can we? How when we spend so much time telling parents that the important things that we're doing, like fluids, like procedures, like the incubator that have nothing to do with them, how do we give them back? Um, you know, their opportunities to to really feel like the parent, um, not because it's something nice to do, but because you are the parent and you're taking that baby home. They're not going to stay with us forever. You know? Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely.
1: I want to to touch on a topic because I feel like we're going to run out of time and I'm not going to get a chance to, but I want to talk to you about the concept of expectations because as a, as a neonatologist, the NICU has, I, I always say that the NICU as professionals carves us in very, in a very peculiar manner. And we, we do know the statistics and we understand what expectations mean. Um, and our field, you allude to that in the book, is very different from medicine in general. If you go to any adult specialty, the goal of an adult specialty, at the very least, is to, after your illness is gone, to send you back to the baseline you were in before you had the illness. Now, our field has no baseline. It's only expectations. And we need to be realistic about our expectations. And we don't like to think of newborn babies as having limited expectations. So in the book, I'm, I'm going to quote you because it's just too good. You say, when you're pregnant, it is natural to imagine your child as a perfect blank slate, unbound by any limitations. They could be anything, an Olympian, an astronaut. It seems cruel to take even an ounce of potential away from a baby. An early arrival into the world changes our bodies and minds in ways big and small, even on a cellular level. It is embedded in our psyches and in our bodies in both literal and metaphoric ways. But the world writes on all of us, whether we are born early or on time. The meaning we make of our lives belongs to each of us. I thought that's so powerful. And I am wondering, as a parent, how do you deal with this? with this bell being placed over your baby of like, yes, your baby is just born, but we're going to need for you to moderate your expectations. Unlike any other parents who think their son or daughter will become the next president of the United States, you are being told, yeah, just, just take it easy. How does that talk to us about (laughs) what is it like to go through this as a parent?
2: Yeah, you know, um, it's terrible. (laughs) (laughs) It's really, really painful. Um, But I will say that I have come to think of it differently. I took it very hard at first. Um, also, I, I took the, um, the uncertainty very, very hard. Um, and the fact that no one could tell me um, what would happen, what would be the ramifications for her. So many of the outcomes are not clear for years and years. Um, and I struggled with that really, very hard. Um, but I have come to think about it a little bit differently. Um, and it's it's not it, it wasn't easy and it's not it's still not easy. Um, the fact that some parents are able to live with, This idea that, you know, they can protect their child. I think um, that they can, you know, control what happens to their child. Um, I don't begrudge them that, but I also know that it's an illusion for everybody. Um, And I think that premature parents come to that sooner. It's a really difficult realization for every parent. It's, It's really painful. Um, you can't control what's gonna to happen to your child. You can't protect them from suffering. Premature parents of premature babies, that is in your face from the moment that your baby is born. You're, I mean, I felt that she was suffering on some level, even though she was getting very compassionate care. Um, and there was nothing I could do about it. Uh, and there was nothing I could do about, you know what this might mean for her. All I could do, was love her and do my very best for her. And the reality is, is that that's true for everybody. Um, and I, you know, I wish I could have put it off for a few years. Um, <laughs> but I do sometimes feel it's a strength, you know, I don't worry about, um, I don't worry about her standardized test stores. To me, it's like, you know, my daughter is happy, and she's she can breathe now (laughs) and she has friends. Um, and, you know, I want to say, as I say this, this manifests itself differently for everyone. You know, some parents have children who are, you know, who can't breathe and who, you know, and do struggle with pretty major things. And, you know, those, those families and those babies, um, those are real outcomes too, and and their children deserve everything that every other child deserves, um, and all of the celebration that we put on preemies who survive and who you know who thrive. Um, I just want to acknowledge that that's not always the reality. Um, but for me, I have been lucky, and I have also tried to have it put me in a place where, you know. I, I'm just happy that she's happy. I'm happy that she can walk and run. I'm happy that she goes to school. Um, and I know how strong she is too. I mean, sometimes I'm like, man, look at this child. Like, <laughs> like she's done so much in her life. And so I try, even though it's very hard to give up control like that and to know, you know that um, to know that you can't prevent your child from suffering. I've I've tried to to turn it into a kind of a strength. This, I, I don't always to, succeed.
1: <laughs> I, I think definitely this goes back to what Dr. Perry Class was talking to us about, where we forgot that children, babies could die. And I think the NICU reminds you that this is a very real possibility, sadly. And so then everything is a bit shifted where you become so happy with the most uh, the smallest of victories, right? And and for us as providers it makes us so jaded because when we say, Hey, this baby will not become an astronaut, then my thought is so so like the other kids in the yeah, newborn nursery, right. because right. the chance of being an astronaut is probably less than one percent. So <laughs>
2: and, Yeah. But
1: it, but it is still very traumatic for a parent to come to grips with with this idea that, like, yeah, your child may not become the next president because it is actually a very <laughs> minute <laughs> mm-hmm. percentage of chance for anyone to achieve this goal. So, but I think it's important, like you said to I think this, this reminds us that some of the things that we take for granted are not always taken for uh, granted by the parents. And we have to be careful on how we introduce these topics. Sorry, I'm rambling. Daphna, go ahead.
0: No, I, this was, thank you for sharing that because that is, I mean, that's the lesson on parenthood, right? For, for everybody. Um, and I wonder so much about how parents navigate life after the NICU. Um, And I understand medical appointments and things like that, but this perspective on parenthood and parenting, um, I wonder how you're able to connect like in the, you know, the mommy groups or the social media or the mommy and me classes um, when the perspective is so different. Mm -hmm
2: um at first i really couldn't you know i didn't want to i felt kind of like i think i write in the book i felt kind of like a witch who had been to like a dark place you know i didn't want to show up with my baby and have them be talking about like oh did you breast or bottle feed and me being like oh i tube fed you know mm-hmm. it just seemed like really just so um such a venice by definition you know such a hidden place um i i felt that i didn't want to i I felt protective of that. And I didn't, I didn't want to shock people. Mm -hmm. Um, but, um, you know, I think it's, there are ways to connect with other families of premature babies. I haven't done, I didn't do that so much, but I know there are some really good Facebook groups where people can sort of commiserate with each other or share, um, share strengths and share strategies. Um, but yes, it was um it it was difficult for me to relate to other people's parenting and even things like, you know, I remember someone said something to me about, oh, they had never given their child Tylenol before, and they were just like, Oh, but her body is pure now and I'm going put and I was like, <laughs> Well, <laughs> I can't relate to that, but you know, I'm <laughs> I would urge you to give your child Tylenol if they need it. Um, <laughs> yeah.
1: I, I'm wondering if if as a parent we connect because as providers, uncertainty has made us awful people to be friends with. Mm. Um, <laughs> when people tell me, hey, next week, it's like next week is years away. Many things could happen. We don't plan anything. <laughs> and I think as neonatologists, we, live, we learn to live with uncertainty because we know that things come up uh on (laughs) in an instant and and I think as parents you do know that I think you you come into the NICU and you're like what is it going to be today Mm -hmm. um I am wondering if um being discharged from the NICU and were you able to leave uncertainty behind or is this something that like us you're carrying with you now forever
2: um I feel that we've gotten to a point now where so many of the major problems have been ruled out that I, I feel just very, very fortunate that I don't live with major uncertainty anymore. For many years, we lived with major uncertainty. There was always a, um, Mira had physical therapy. Um, Actually, Mira was just discharged from her IEP. She was a special educate. She was receiving special education services. Thank you. And PT and OT and, you know, suddenly she doesn't need it anymore. Um, But there was a long period of time where people would speculate about whether or not she might have mild CP because one side of her body was much weaker than the other side. Um, She had very severe asthma for a long time that was really extremely frightening. So we, um, you know, we'd be in the emergency room in the middle of the night pretty frequently. Um, and so that kind, I I will say that actually the the contrast between the sort of the physical um, physical therapy needs and the asthma really made it very clear to me. I was like, I don't care if she's if her if her left leg is weak. I mean, I don't if she like if she has mild CP. It's like okay, but but she needs to be able to breathe. Um, and so that was even you know, so I felt like people are all, oftentimes really focusing on um, outcomes around CP, around physical stuff like that. But to me, the, the worst thing was the asthma because we couldn't get it under control um, for a long time. And watching your child struggle to breathe just changes your life in, um, in pretty terrible ways um but you know again we were lucky and and she has grown out of it and so you know living with uncertainty I think for us in terms of her health it has kind of dissipated and I think it does dissipate for a lot of lucky families you know after a couple years after several years for some people it never dissipates um but here we are in a global situation of deep uncertainty and um you know, it's not something that anyone can um, can escape. That, that sense no, but of, I do feel like we're better equipped to deal with it. I think. Yes. Um. Yeah. Well, you know, actually, around the pandemic, I was kind of like, "Listen, you you all needed to be a NICU mom," because <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm like, I have my stocks of hand sanitizer, I have my stocks of masks. I'm like ready for this. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I,
0: I want to ask about the pandemic, but um, what you just said reminds me that the the literature is pretty clear that the things that we focus on as you know neonatal care professionals in the anticipatory guidance we give um, misses the mark. Like we seem to be malaligned, misaligned with what is important to parents. In the NICU admission, and then certainly um, after discharge, and I don't know if you have any feedback or commentary about you know how we can you know globally do that differently.
2: It's hard, right? Because I know that all parents are different, and I um, and what they want is different, and so it's a very it's it's very challenging. Um, I would say that as specific as you can be. Um, as possible to this particular child, um, it indicates to parents that you are paying attention to their child as an individual, that you care about their child as an individual. And and also that, you know, there's there's no need to bring up, um, you know, bad outcomes that might happen for which there is no current evidence is going to happen for this particular individual, and I think, you know, giving false hope, of course, is is not good, but withholding hope because you're worried that something bad may happen, um, is is can be cruel um, because. Um, Parents really don't know. They don't have context beyond what you've told them often. I didn't have context. I was afraid to Google things after she was born. Um, And so, you know, if you say, well, premature babies sometimes, you know, they have BPD, they have, um, you know, they have lung disease for all of their life, while you still have no idea if that's going to be relevant to a particular baby. I'm not sure that that's helpful information. So I guess, you know, in terms of, you know, obviously if a parent asks about that, then they want to know about that. But um, I think that if if there can be one thing, it's like thinking about the baby as an individual, speaking to their individual circumstance as much as you can, um, and. I think that, that this is, you know, I was, I was thinking about family centered care and I was thinking about, you know, if you go to someone's house and they've just had a newborn baby. The way that you interact with that newborn baby with their parents in the house is like you don't just like go pick the baby up and sort of say stuff about the baby and you know call the call the be like hey mom like with it like you would have a profound level of respect for the parent and the you know the family in the house with the baby and obviously the NICU is different and you're saving these babies' lives so that is different but if there can be sort of more of a sense of you're speaking about someone's child. <laughs> you know, it's not, it's not interesting to us from like a, you know, from a scientific perspective. You know, I remember one time a neonatologist said something to me about Mira's, oh, she doesn't have much gray matter yet. And I was like, she doesn't have much gray matter yet. Like I couldn't even begin. I couldn't even formulate the question. You know what I mean? I just like, let it drop. I was like, he, okay. She doesn't have much gray matter yet. Like I, I didn't know about brain development and fetal brain development. That wasn't something I was familiar with. So, you know, if there can be an, um, just more of an emphasis on speaking about people's children specifically as as these as as somebody's child um, and not, you know, not speaking in jargon or hypotheticals that may not um, be relevant to a particular family.
1: We're we're running short on time, and I have two more questions I wanted to ask you. So the first one was we haven't talked about your, the work you've done in researching yeah. the field of neonatology, which is pretty much the second half of the book. Yeah,
2: we didn't even. That's, get that. It's fantastic. <laughs>
1: um, you, I think you were fortunate to speak to numerous, like spectacular physicians. Professor Lagama, Professor Mercurio, to just name a few, are phenomenal. Um, I know them; they're excellent. Now, my question to you though is. You leave the NICU, and I think for every parent, for anybody that enters the NICU for the first time, it's probably one of the most technologically advanced units in the hospital. So you're like, wow, this is like the tip of the spear of medicine. Then you do this legwork of looking at the history. How shocked were you at how much of a crapshoot our field has been (laughs) for the past (laughs) 20 years uh, and all the weird things we've been doing to babies?
2: (laughs) Well, no, I mean, honestly, my takeaway was how utterly incredible it is that we have arrived at this moment where babies like Mira are are more than likely to survive, especially you're right, given that, you know, it was catch as catch can, like people, mm-hmm. people trying whatever they could try. Um, but also there was so much beauty in that in this idea of the real change of mindset where it was suddenly like actually we should be doing more and I think we can do more actually for these babies um and that that being the you know the trajectory of neonatology being very messy and pretty weird um you know (laughs) but like uh, you know but being full of people who are so fired up with um with conviction that, that like, that actually we can do more, um, was beautiful to me. Um, and in fact, you know, I had a couple people, um, say to me, it's like, you know, compared to, um, like obstetrics, like obstetrics is kind of in the dark ages compared to neonatology. It's like, you know, and I'm not trying to, to to, you know, denigrate it. right there's really not much they can do it's like you got to get them past 24 weeks and then like because there's other you know there's just so little that can be that can be done i had people ask me well why couldn't they fix your placenta it's like no one can fix a placenta like there's nothing you can do (laughs) so um before we do the
1: repercussions of of Upsetting our OB colleagues. We do owe them a debt of <laughs> gratitude. Uh, because they are the ones who
0: <laughs> forgetting babies as far as or, they, do, so they like, do. They do. Um, they do.
1: The inventor of the incubator was an obstetrician. So so That's let's right. uh so, That's yeah. True. I mean this is us just doing damage control on our end, uh, Sarah. Don't don't mind us for a second. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um I wanted to ask you, Ben and I talk about this a lot, and you, I think, describe it a few times in the book. Um, So I'll share some passages about just this life in the NICU. You know, the NICU is both futuristic and primal, which, you know, relates to what you're talking about about the technology and kind of the circuitous way that we got to where we are. She was not so much alive, but in limbo. And, um, we kind of think about the You stay as this like suspended reality. Um, and I wonder if, if that's how parents experience it
2: also. Yeah, that's a good way to put it, a suspended reality. Yeah, it, it is like the outside world kind of doesn't exist and you um, are in this very liminal space um, where you're child is being kept alive by machines um, and I felt, you know, and I came to realize that there was a brain development reality behind this, but of course I didn't know anything about that at the time. I felt that she was neither here nor there. Um, it, I felt um, that my interactions were her, with her were not um, the interactions I had experienced with newborn babies before. Um, of course, and um, yeah, it it feels like a suspended reality kind of place where you know it's very um, it it has a there's an atmosphere about the NICU that I have never experienced before or since. And I had you know, I had been in ICUs before, like with my mother, was nothing like that. Um, there was nothing I could, there's still nothing I could compare it to. Um, it's like, um, you know, it's like a nursery on another plane. It just isn't, um, there's an energy about it that's full of potential, but also full of, you know, the possibility for emergency and for pain. And, um, it would struck me as highly, highly charged. And our NICU was a ward style NICU. And so I was seeing um, the, you know, the baby next to us passed away. Sadly, um, I saw, you know, I saw babies code. I saw, I saw babies grow up and go home. I mean, all, you know, all of these things um, were happening all around me. And I felt it on a level that I, I don't think I can quite describe. Huh.
1: Okay. So my last question, Um, I think through the book, there's, I'm wondering if this is because of the timing at which you were writing the book, but there's definitely a lot of anxiety when it comes to neurodevelopment and how is the, how is Mira going to develop? And, and there is, I believe I perceive, especially when, when she's not yet like hugging you, like the fear of autism. Right. And I, I can tell that early steps clinics have mentioned to you that the diagnosis can be done as early as 18 months, which is terrifying to hear because it's like, what do you mean? Like I cannot find out until she's two years old. This is but um and that I think is very normal. But then at and in the epilogue, at some point she does hug you and you can and and I you can the way you write it so well because you can feel this the relief of this is this is happening Mm -hmm. thankfully. But you mentioned something that says that this this felt like a mutual forgiveness. And I am wondering if you can tell us a little bit more about that because on the one hand, I've, I'm very familiar with the unfounded guilt of parents towards their preemie babies. And I say unfounded because there's no reason for them to feel any guilt. Mm-hmm. But that was a bit novel for me of feeling that the child had to forgive you in a way, and this may be unfounded as well, but I'm curious to hear what your state of mind was.
2: Yeah. You know, it's funny. I actually wasn't, I wasn't worried about autism because I never felt that she was unengaged with the world. Um, but I did feel like she was wary of me or of, um I felt that she was Um. I felt that she was disinclined to relax. I mean, she has never been a mellow child. She's not a mellow child, and she. <laughs> um, we raise them on. Top I. <laughs> yeah, I know you do. It's a real problem for me. Um, <laughs> um. So I felt that maybe the bond between us, the specific bond between mother and child, had been damaged irreparably. I wasn't sure if it would ever be the way it would have been. Um, And you know, that had to do with, as we were talking about feeding, breastfeeding, um, the way that she didn't want to snuggle when she was eating, she would just want to lay on the couch Mm. away from you while you fed her at arm's length. Um, And so there were these very sort of fundamental and what I thought of as universal interactions between parents and babies, holding them to feed them, you know, snuggling them that she didn't seem very interested in as a baby. Um, And I just wasn't sure if there was something about her Entrance into the world and what she had experienced. I knew it wasn't on a conscious level, but I just wondered if there was something about that that had changed her psyche um, and her ability to, um, you know, bond with me and maybe my ability to bond with her too. And then when she did, she was about 18 months. And suddenly she started to want to snuggle, like, you know, like snuggle, you wrap your arms around her, that she would feel comfortable that way, that that would be a source of comfort for her. Um, And I felt great relief because it felt like we had mended something and that I felt like um, I felt that we were connected again. And I had felt like we had been severed um, in a traumatic way. And that we had together, really, both of us had to go through something um, and had to just keep the establishment of our relationship was in these acts of caring and being together. And that at some point I felt like, you know, that this that this was that this had mended and this was possible for me to really be her mother because for so long I did not feel like her mother. I felt like I had nothing to do with her having survived. I mean, if it had been up to me, she would have died. That's how I felt.
0: Yeah. I'm, I'm struck by just how, you know, the, this ex- NICU experience, I mean, changes your whole like personhood really. Um, and. Um and I, I'm hopeful you can just speak a little bit about you know how it's changed you. Um, I can see um, in your writing how it's changed your even your career. Um, and you know, I I wonder about you know uh, professional moms who have this experience, and then how it how it changes even your like professional trajectory. Um, if in yeah, if in, I I think that will be my last question because I have, I have, one, one, have one, one more. Time for. I'm sorry.
2: Okay. Hey, I
0: have a list
2: too. <laughs> that I <didn't> <laughs> I'll, I'll try to make it shorter. I maybe mean, yeah, I'm so long-winded sometimes. Um I um how did it change my personhood? I did, you know, I was a very career focused person, um, and there was nothing wrong with that. Um but I do remember there being this one moment in the NICU where I was like, I was trying to get an extension of my maternity leave. And I thought, I do not care if they give this to me. Obviously, this comes from a place of great privilege, because if they had fired me, I would have just been fired and that would have we would have made it OK. Um, but I just suddenly I did. I didn't care about any of it. Um, I thought, you know, they can I, I I just I don't care if I become the editor in chief of a magazine. I'm just I'm just I just don't care anymore. And it was very, very sudden. Um, and it it changed my sense of how I want to spend my time. Um, it it really took away a lot of the sort of pressure I felt to be ambitious. Um, and it gave me permission, and this has been very sort of like a, it's a long process and, and one that is not done, but, I, um, I'm i a journalist, I went to, I have a master's degree in journalism. And, um, you know, I'd always done reporting. Um, I mostly focused on food, food policy, restaurants. Um, and I loved that work, actually, um, I loved it. And um, I realized after she was, you know, a couple years later, that I wanted to apply those skills to thinking about what is healthcare like for people? What does it mean? Um, and and I am. I feel that it's something I'm meant to do. I, my both of my parents are very ill as I was growing up. Um, both of them died relatively young, so I have always been. Um, I've I've always been sort of in healthcare settings as a caretaker, and I realized that this gives me a valuable perspective um, and I was able to give voice to that a little bit more than I would have. I just felt like I didn't care as much anymore about, um, I I just, I was, I felt less limited because I felt the stakes were lower for myself in my career.
0: Well, I appreciate the the lesson in priorities, and I will refer yes. to my colleague for the last. Yes, it's
1: related. That's good. It's good. It all worked out, Daphna. <laughs> but I wanted to talk to you specifically about something you mentioned in the book repeatedly, which is that thanks to your husband continuing to work, you had continued health insurance. Mm-hmm. Which, again, I'm not going to go right. into the disaster that the fact that this is the way it is, whatever. But can you? Yep. Can you? Um, we've given you a lot of credit, but I feel like, um, the also (laughs) hero of this story is, is the spouse that has to go back to the normal life all the while this is happening. Mm -hmm. And this pressure that if I don't have this, then we can't pay for the bills of the baby in the hospital. What is, how, how do you, um, I mean, just, just tell us a little bit about what is it like for the spouses who are under, under a different type of pressure, but tremendous pressure nonetheless.
2: Oh yeah, absolutely. So my husband Amol is uh, is a wonderful, wonderful person, and he works for CV for CBS News. And um, yeah, he has his his job provides our healthcare. Um, it's a deep injustice that the way our healthcare system works in this country. Um, but I think that he, it's been it's hard for him, and I think it's hard for spouses for fathers or for non-gestational parents in the NICU because it is often all about the mother, or the gestational parent and the baby. Um, and, you know, I think that's an ongoing challenge for our country as a whole, because as much as NICUs can do the really, really good work, uh, the really necessary work of trying to center families, Um, I hate to go, you know, I hate to go bigger on this, but it's kind of the only answer to the question, which is that, you know, if we don't have paid family leave and if we don't have health care for all, um, there's always going to be um, something pulling parents out of the NICU. And um, whether it's, you know, if it's a single mother, it's the single mother. If it's, you know, if it's if if the one spouse like us, um, has the better paying job, has the health insurance, it's going to be them and they do pay a price for that. So, you know, it was hard for him, I think, to feel capable. Um, it was sad for him that he couldn't be there. He felt guilty in a different way than I did. Um, and you know, I think he felt just, I think he struggled to feel like an effective father um for a while not now but you know when Mira was a baby um and it also it it draws you know it in some ways causes can cause some conflict between the mother or the gestational parent and the other parent because you feel like Oh, you're not here for me. I I know that you're out there getting our health insurance, which is absolutely critical. But at the same time, I'm alone, and so it just you know it sets people up for very difficult um, you know very difficult dynamics that then have to be sort of slowly dealt with. Um, and I think the only way to to really tackle this problem is to you know um, support families <laughs> with paid family leave with universal healthcare, I mean, there's just no, there's just no other, you know, there's no other way.
1: You're absolutely right. I'm very happy I got to
0: ask that question. I'm done, Daphna. I'm very happy you got (laughs) to ask that question as well. So, Sarah, thank you. uh, This has been a a wealth, a a real, I hope our listeners feel um, this was an education for them, because even after reading the book, um, speaking with you has certainly um, been an educational for me. I, I concur.
2: Oh, I, I'm i just honestly honored to be here. And I appreciate your great questions and being able to speak with you.
0: Thank you, Sarah.
1: Mm-hmm. Have a good day, Daphna. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Incubator Podcast. If you like this episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcast or the Apple Podcast website. You can find other episodes of the show on Apple Podcast, Spotify, Google Podcast, or the podcast app of your choice. We would love to hear from you, so feel free to send us questions, comments, or suggestions to our email address, NICUpodcast at gmail.com. You can also message the show on Instagram or Twitter at Nikupodcast or through our website at www.the-incubator.org.